Well, howdy there, stranger. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to another episode of Beers with Queers, the true crime podcast where I research a case and Brad and potentially you guys hear it for the first time. So today we're going to be taking a bit of a departure and talking about a different branch of true crime. You know, up to this point, we've mainly just covered murders and serial killers. So today we're going to be looking at another big subclass of true crime, that is drugs. Now, I'm pretty sure everyone here has seen at least one promo advertising for a new movie releasing this coming Friday called Cocaine Bear. It looks absolutely ridiculous, over the top, and just looks like it's going to be a fun time all around. So it's right up my alley. I love stupid movies. But one of the big selling points for the movie is that it's inspired by true events, which of course is an immediate attention grabber because the story just seems so unbelievable to be true. And, well, that's because it is. So what? If, I, I thought it looked like, I mean, a bear that snorts cocaine, that's true. Then it goes on a killing rampage, right? Well, the part where it snorts coke is true. <laughs> of course, there was no bear going on a coke-fueled murder spree. Sorry, spoiler alert. However, the cocaine bear did in fact exist and is actually still around. And by that, I mean he is stuffed and on display. But we will get more into that later. And the real story behind a simple black bear turned cokehead is actually pretty interesting. Um, maybe not as interesting as the the movie, but we'll uh, we'll let you guys be the judge of that because today we're going to be covering the story of the cocaine bear and the bluegrass conspiracy. And this has pretty much everything. It has a drug empire, it has a mysterious disappearance, multiple murders. It covers the whole rainbow of true crime. So, uh, Let's get into it. Oh, but before we do get too deep into it, no, this video is not sponsored, but I wish it was. So Elizabeth Banks, hit us up and let's talk business. Also, the majority of the info in this episode comes from the OG book on the case, The Bluegrass Conspiracy by Sally Denton. So without further ado, let's just jump right, right into it. Or should I say, jump out of it? Because that is exactly how our story begins. In the morning, in the early morning hours of September 11th, 1985, in Knoxville, Tennessee, Fred Myers, an 85-year-old retired engineer, awoke around 5 a.m. and began to go about his morning routine. As he was shaving, he happened to glance through his bathroom window and was greeted by a pretty shocking sight. A man lay dead in his driveway. Now, Fred immediately phoned the police, and they arrived at his house not long after to discover a man attached to a parachute with a very large duffel bag wrapped around his waist. The man was quickly identified as being 40-year-old Andrew Carter Thornton II, a prominent narcotics officer and lawyer from Kentucky. Blood had dried on Andrew's cheek after running from his mouth, and his body was covered with multiple scrapes and bruises. It would later be discovered that he had suffered several broken ribs and even his spine was severed, but it was a ruptured aorta that finally killed him. They estimated that he had been dead in the driveway for about six to eight hours, putting his time of death just after midnight. He was glad head to toe in military style combat gear, was carrying two guns, and most iconic of all, he had on Gucci slides. So, you know, you never go skydiving without your uh, Gucci slides. Your Gucci what? Gucci slides, their shoes. Oh, I've never heard them called slides before. Yeah, they're called slides, Gucci slides. Well, I learned something new. 
Feeling the bag around his waist, it was clear to police the cause of death was due to the fact that Andrew, plus the weight of the bag, was far too heavy for the parachute to hold, and thus sent him crashing down to earth. So of course, police are already baffled because why the hell is a narcotics officer parachuting out of a plane in the middle of the night? But they got more questions than answers when they finally looked inside the bag around Andrew's waist. Inside, police found 34 football-sized bags of cocaine estimated to be worth over $75 million. And now, that is there's a lot of conflicting reports about how just how much money the cocaine was worth. It, no matter where you look, it's always something different. It ranges from as low as $10 million to as high as $75 million. But the book listed as $75 million, so that's what I'm going with. Now, of course, it did not take long for the media to latch on to this story, and the man who fell from the sky, as they called it, began to spread like wildfire across the eastern United States. But that actually turned out to be a good thing, as it led police to getting several important tips. A forest ranger in the Chattahoochee National Forest down near Blairsville, Georgia, was out patrolling the woods when he stumbled across a black duffel bag hanging from a tree. On the ground directly below that one, he found another duffel bag. Upon inspecting the bag, he discovered that it contained another 34 packages of cocaine, and he reported it to police, believing it may have something to do with the dead man in Knoxville. Another helpful tip came from an employee at a small airport right outside Knoxville. After seeing the report on the news, he quickly called police to inform them of a strange discovery he had made a few days before. While working on a few small planes, he discovered a parachute in a green jumpsuit purposely hidden behind a building. Police bagged it for evidence and immediately began to speculate that Andrew was not the only one to jump from a plane that night, and he more than likely had an accomplice. And finally, police received a tip about a plane having crashed in Hayesville, North Carolina, just over 60 miles away from Knoxville. A man who was night fishing reported seeing a low-flying plane crash into the side of a mountain, and he figured it must be related to the Knoxville case. Pol these guys didn't do a very good job of anything, it seems. We got a plane crash, a dead man in a somebody's front yard, cocaine scattered from the whole area between Tennessee and North Carolina. Oh, you'll see it. Uh, it sounds like these guys weren't very good with math because a lot of these this caper needed some math to be pulled off, it sounds like. I mean, the weight-wise and everything like that, and the parachute load, you would think they would have maybe put in some research on this. When did this happen, actually? 1985. Okay, they didn't have Google. That <laughs> Now I understand what's going on. So, police hiked five hours to the crash site and discovered the wreckage, but no passengers, no cargo, and no flight documents to suggest who the plane belonged to. But one interesting thing they did note was that the back seats had been ripped out, leaving the plane mostly hollow, which is common for drug smuggling. Eventually, police were able to positively match the plane to Andrew Thornton. So now, it's only been 48 hours since Andrew's bizarre death, and police are already off to a pretty good start. They have the plane, they have Drew, they have a shit ton of coke, but they were still baffled by what the hell was going on. It's not every day a multi-million dollar drug smuggler just drops dead out of the sky. Now, while Knoxville police were still scrambling to piece together this bizarre crime, Hundreds of miles away up in Kentucky, police were already putting together their own timeline of events and closing in on Andrew and his ever-growing network of high-ranking officials in his drug empire. So now, of course, let's rewind a bit and let's just figure out how we got to this point. 
So we'll start with Andrew. Andrew Carter the Thornton the second, or Drew for short, was born on October thirtieth, nineteen forty-four, in Bourbon County, Kentucky. By all accounts, he had a pretty normal childhood, went to a private school, and eventually went to the University of Kentucky before dropping out in order to join the Army. Now, once in the Army, he trained as a paratrooper and even received a Purple Heart for his participation with the invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. After leaving the Army in 1966, he began to train racehorses with his father, and for anyone who doesn't know, Kentucky is like a very big hub for racing and breeding racehorses, same as in Tennessee, so it's one of the big, wealthy moneymakers. Now, Drew began taking night classes at Eastern Kentucky University and eventually graduated with a degree in law enforcement in 1971. Afterwards, he joined the Lexington Police Department Narcotics Squad. During his time on the squad, he again returned to school, and by 1976, he graduated with a degree in law from the University of Kentucky College of Law. One former co-worker of Drew's at the police station would later say about him, he was a 007 type personality, an adventurer driven by adrenaline, adrenaline rush. And a lot of people point to this strong type A personality as probably being the reason behind his turn from well-respected cop to drug smuggler. The man had no, no other sorts of trauma in his life, no sort of hardships that anyone could find out. He grew up financially stable, went to the best schools. His parents were described as good and loving people towards their son. So a lot of people think it was just because Drew was bored. He was bored with how well his life was going. He wanted excitement. He wanted adventure. You know, he wanted to live on the edge. And one former FBI agent over Drew's case actually described him as a little boy who just never grew up. And I think that describes him well, and a little boy that gets in way over his head. So, I mean, the dude pretty much had everything going for him at this point. He's a well-respected member of the community, has several degrees, and a good job, but that was never enough for Drew. He always seemed to want more and more, and he wasn't shy at all about using shortcuts to get there, even if they were illegal. But people who knew Drew would later say that his... This probably came from a constant need to try and impress his father and outshine his father because his father was a very successful man. He bred and trained racehorses and he was making big money and he was bumping shoulders. And that's the expression, bumping shoulders with the Lexington elite. Rubbing or bumping shoulders. I've never heard of bumping shoulders. Yeah, it's something like I've that. heard of like rubbing elbows. Maybe it's rubbing elbows. <laughs> with all of Lexington, Kentucky's elite and wealthy. And Drew wanted that too. He wanted to be one of the elite. And he figured the quickest way to achieve that dream was drugs. As anyone should, drugs is always the the easiest way to get to your dreams. Hey. No, don't do it. <laughs> now, Drew would also be described as being extremely paranoid and very much big on the whole survival of the fittest culture and was always preparing for what he saw as the inevitable Armageddon. So he was a, a doomsday prepper, which included things such as stockpiling weapons and food, setting up tall barbed wire fences around his farm, and even digging trenches around the property and setting up barracks. Police did search his property several times in the 1970s after hearing substantial claims that Drew was running a guerrilla-style training camp on the farm. And we will get kind of more into that later. And uh, yeah, he was. Now, around this time, beginning in late 1971, that's when Drew decided to branch out into the drug trade. 
He began to steal drugs from evidence lockers and even began selling the drugs that he confiscated from other criminals that he had arrested in some of his infamous drug busts. And I say that because Drew became very well known. This whole Lexington narcotic squad became very well known for their their drug busts. Like they went all in. They showed no mercy. They rounded everyone up. But then you'll pretty soon learn that they were all um, crooked. And they were just keeping the drugs for themselves. That is a motivation. If you do the bust and you get to keep the goods, hey, you kill two birds with one stone. So he began, you know, he began testing the waters. He was taking little drugs here and there from the evidence locker. And it was just weed at this point. And so he started selling it. And he, at first it was just a few bags of marijuana. And he used connections made through a childhood friend of his named Bradley Bryant in order to sell and distribute the stolen drugs. And we'll get more into Bradley later. See, weed is a gateway drug. It is the gateway to selling and stealing heavier narcotics in the future. It was a lot harsher back then in the 70s, too. Weed's not looked at as it is today, where it's more accepted. Back then, it was considered, if you, you know, if you're a weed smoker, you might as well just be a cokehead. Well, it's kind of considered that, depending on the state you're in right now. That's, that's true. So, Drew began building up a pretty successful side hustle selling drugs he confiscated from his drug bust. And this is where the first weird incident surrounding Drew Thornton comes into play. And that is the disappearance of Melanie Flynn. So, on January 26, 1977, 24-year-old Melanie Flynn called her father Bobby, who was also a state senator at this time, Around 4 p.m., and the two chatted for a while. The call ended with Bobby asking Melanie to drop off a pamphlet for local high school coaches as Bobby was a part-time referee. Melanie agreed to drop the pamphlet off later that evening when she returned home from running errands. Little did Bobby know that would be the last time he ever heard from his daughter. So Melanie had a doctor's appointment at 5.30 that evening and left work early in order to be there on time. The last reported sighting of her was by several co-workers who watched as she nearly slipped on some ice in the parking lot walking to her car. After driving off, Melanie and her car would vanish. Now, Melanie's parents, Bobby and Ella, weren't initially concerned when she failed to show up to the house that evening. Melanie was described as being fiercely independent and was constantly coming and going, traveling to various states on a whim such as Florida, Colorado, New York, and even the Caribbean in attempts to find employment as a singer or a model. She was also very much a party girl. Her parents would later say that she loved to live wild, fast, and free. And although they didn't agree with everything, every one of her actions, they did trust her judgment to eventually do the right thing. It wasn't until two days later when Melanie's boss called Bobby to inquire about why she hadn't shown up for work. After that, Bobby instantly knew that something was wrong and quickly began calling around to Melanie's friends and even her doctor, who revealed Melanie never showed up for her appointment that day. Now, Bobby eventually got into contact with a man whom Melanie had been dating at the time named Bill Cannon, a detective for the Lexington Police Narcotics Division. Now, with Bill's help, the Flynn's reported their daughter missing, and pretty soon an investigation was opened. But in the beginning, they didn't search too hard as Melanie had a history of running away. And also, she suffered from an addiction to alcohol and pills. Bill also seemed to openly deny having any relationship with Melanie, which was odd to her parents, as according to Melanie, the two were actually talking about getting married. Police began to take things, and I know I just mentioned this random Bill guy, but I promise, stay with me. 
Police began to take these things a little bit more seriously when 11 days after she went missing, Melanie's car was found parked in a seedy apartment complex that was very well known as a hotspot for drug activity. The car was searched and police found the coat Melanie was last seen wearing that day in the trunk and no, nothing else seemed to be missing except for her car keys and her purse. Now, the car didn't actually help police much in narrowing down what exactly happened to her or any possible suspects, but investigators would soon learn a critical piece of information about Melanie from Bill. Melanie was working as a drug informant. Around 1976, Bill had actually busted Melanie for possession of marijuana, and she agreed to work with him as an informant in order to get the charges dropped. Now, Bill like Drew, was described as a man who liked to live on the edge and was very aggressive in his tactics in securing drug bust and arrest, but he was also described as being overtly cruel, narcissistic, and took himself way too seriously, which are all things that people also used to describe Drew. And Bill was also actually the de facto leader of the narcotics squad. So Drew and Bill would work very closely as they used Melanie to get them into multiple lavish and wealthy parties thrown by some of Lexington's elite, who were also involved with the drug trade. It was during this time that Melanie is believed to have potentially had a relationship with both men at various points in the investigation. Now, police questioned Bill on Melanie's role as an informant, but he assured them that it was highly unlikely her being an informant had anything to do with her disappearance. After just two months of investigating, the lead detective on the case, Detective Bazak, closed the case due to the fact he said, Melanie was alive and well living in Miami. Now, of course, her parents were baffled at this conclusion, but according to Bazak, he interviewed over 200 people in the Miami area who claimed to have seen or spoken with Melanie in the months after her disappearance, but like, you know, not Melanie herself. He claimed that that was enough evidence to suggest she had simply ran away to start a new life, and so the case was closed. Of course, this wasn't enough for the Flynns, who continued to urge the police to look further into their daughter's disappearance, but more specifically, to look closer at Bill, Cannon, and Drew Thornton. Eventually, her parents used all their social clout and connections to get a new detective assigned to the case and reopen it. Detective Ralph Ross first noticed first wanted to follow up on the previous detective's leads that Melanie was alive and well living in Miami. And after some digging, he actually found the girl, exactly who everyone was talking about, and it was not Melanie. His next focus became Bill and Drew. So Ralph was actually the head of the organized crime and intelligence unit of the Kentucky State Police, and he had already received several tips from other informants that Bill and Drew were responsible for Melanie's death. After doing some digging on the two, he found that there was no official record of Melanie being a drug informant at all, and that Bill or Drew had never filed any sort of paperwork suggesting otherwise. Bill continued to deny knowing Melanie that, that well, and denied that he had any knowledge of her death. Now, Drew Thornton, on the other hand, was a man that Ralph had his eye on for almost a decade at this point. It was in 1971 that Ralph and his team received a tip that Drew and several other members of the Lexington police were selling drugs after a huge stash of marijuana went missing from the evidence room. Now, Ralph and his men actually performed a raid on Drew's house, and they found the stolen marijuana hidden underneath the floorboards still in the police evidence bag. Even after the chief of police was informed of this, no criminal or disciplinary charges were taken against Drew, and he was allowed to continue as a narcotics agent which of course immediately made Ralph realize that there was not this was not one man and one man operation there were several high ranking officials within the Lexington PD that were protecting Drew now although at the time there was less evidence of Bill's part 
in the operation. Like I said before, he was considered the unofficial leader of the narcotic squad and was actually the one who helped establish the unit's hardcore tactics to busting drug smuggling rings. One other very suspicious thing was that even though the unit was making literal hundreds of arrests at this point, the conviction rate for those arrests was almost zero. Raising eyebrows of everyone in town, not just Ralph. So, you know, yeah, they're getting all these arrests and everything, but then the criminals they arrest are getting off and being released back. So, after a while, people start to notice. Now, Ralph also found it odd that Drew quit the police force just two weeks before Melanie disappeared in order to join a new law form. Law form? Law firm. Ralph believed that it was for one of two reasons. He was finally caught stealing drugs from the evidence room by someone not in on the scheme and chose to silently retire instead of facing criminal charges. Or B, he was aware of what was about to happen to Melanie due to her knowing too much about the operation through Bill. In August of 1977, Melanie's purse was found floating in the Kentucky River 20 miles outside of Lexington, but unfortunately, it contained no helpful clues. Now, without any solid evidence to hold them on, both Bill and Drew were free to go while police continued their investigation. However, sadly, Melanie's case remains unsolved to this day with no new leads to the location of her body or who actually killed her. It is still treated as an active investigation, so Drew nor anyone else was ever charged. There's no actual evidence confirming they had anything to do with it. So I'm not going to say either way if I think they did it, because honestly, who knows? But this is just one interesting situation surrounding the life of Drew Thornton. However, sometime later, witnesses would claim that Drew began boasting and saying that Melanie had gone the way of Jimmy Hoffa. And for those of you who don't know who Jimmy Hoffa is, he is a former labor union leader who disappeared under mysterious circumstances, and it's assumed that he was killed for his knowledge of mafia drug smuggling. So, to close out Bill's story, because he kind of goes away, uh, he goes off on his own after this point, he was eventually arrested for federal drug charges in 1993 and served 17 years in a maximum security prison before being released in 2010, and his current whereabouts are unknown. So now, by this point, Drew is done with being a police officer, He's moved on, and he honestly doesn't have much to show for his career as an officer as he received no promotions, no sort of recognition, outside of a brutality lawsuit filed against him. So he left quite a legacy behind. And so remember I said Drew left the police force to go work at a law firm? Well, that is true. It was a new company that would soon allow Drew to continue to expand his own business and form what he called the company. So now let's talk about the company. So in 1977, Drew began to attend parties and hang out more with a childhood friend of his named Bradley Bryant. Now Drew and Bradley had known each other since the two were went to the same private school together and quickly formed a bond that many people described as Bradley's the leader, Drew's the follower. It was a, later stated that Drew seemed to be more devoted to Bradley than Brad was to him. So like Drew, Bradley came from a pretty financially stable background. His father was a successful used car salesman, and his grandfather was actually the mayor of Lexington for a number of years. However, in the 1950s, tragedy struck the family when Bradley's grandfather committed suicide, which caused his father to fall into a deep depression and struggle to maintain his own business. And by 1958, Bradley's parents were divorced, and he went to live with his mom. So Bradley originally went to college to study architecture, but dropped out after just a few years because he found that he had neither the drive nor the endurance to complete college. Eventually, Bradley's younger sister Lynn would meet and marry a man named Dan Chandler, 
who was the son of the Kentucky governor at the time, Happy Chandler. Now, this kind of served as Bradley's entry into the Lexington High Society, as the Chandlers were very well off and influential people in the area, and Bradley used this to his advantage to make connections and get into the most exclusive parties around. Through these contacts, Bradley was able to befriend a guy that actually helped build up KFC into the fast food empire it is today. It wasn't Colonel Sanders, but he helped the colonel to branch out and build up his business. And through him, he got a pretty well-paying executive job and seemed to be on the up and up. But like Drew and Bill before him, he wanted more. He wanted to be one of the elites, the wealthiest and most powerful, and pretty soon he formed his own private security company called Executive Protections. That was really a front to begin a drug smuggling ring. (laughs) And he already knew one person that would be more than eager to join his team, Drew Thornton. You can tell these guys are from the South because every major scheme to get money ends up in a drug smuggling ring. Hey. (laughs) It's the Appalachians, fellas. That's the... It's just the way it is. Now, this plan was ambitious, to say the least. Both Drew and Bradley began recruiting other fellow police officers and drug agents from various states and federal agencies through Drew's former contacts with the Lexington PD. And pretty soon, they amassed over 30 officers of the law to help them in their scheme. But they weren't satisfied with this. Their operation was still grounded. They wanted to get their supplies straight from the source. And so in order to recruit In order to do that, they started to recruit pilots and airmen for their missions to South America. And they did this because they knew a guy who actually ran a magazine for military veterans. And so they started taking out ads looking for ex-military pilots to help fly their planes. And they found a whole pool of people more than willing to not only fly, but all of them were actually eager and up for the challenge of flying under the radar at night and landing planes in remote jungles in South America (laughs) to collect the supplies. So in just a few short years, their operation had gone from two people selling confiscated weed to a global drug smuggling ring, which Drew and Bradley referred to as the company whenever talking about it in public. And I mean, so far, I mean, like all these people, like officers and ex-military they're talking to, they're like, yeah, man, yeah, I'll help. All right. So, you know, they're kind of like, all right. Yeah, cool. Now, remember, the company was fronted as a legit private security business, and they even ran it like one, figuring they can do both at the same time. Since this was listed as, since they were listed as a private security firm, the fact that they began to quickly amass a whole arsenal of weapons and guns didn't seem that out of the ordinary. Nor did it seem out of the ordinary for the company to start buying airplanes in order to chauffeur their clients around safely. So that was actually that. It's pretty clever. I'll give them that. Like the firm, of course, a private security firm is going to have planes and guns and stuff like that. Now, the two quickly amassed a shit ton of weapons and employees, and with the help of Bill Cannon, actually set up guerrilla style training camps deep in the Kentucky woods to train their new members on how to successfully pull their operation off. Also, thanks to Drew's law degree, they were very wise how to handle their money while avoiding detection from Homeland Security or the U.S. Treasury. And one example included how the Treasury office would only be tipped off if 10 grand or more was deposited at one time. So Drew would always make sure to carry around a briefcase of cash filled with $9,999. He wanted right up to the edge. To be deposited, yeah. And that's one thing about all these guys is they like living on the edge. 
living like Larry. Also, thanks to their contacts in the Lexington PD, they were always tipped off at any potential investigations or suspicions surrounding their business. So they were already once they were always one step ahead of employees at this time. Employees of authorities at this time. I was looking at the word employees. They were always one step ahead of the authorities. And within a year, they had already amassed a very large fortune. But again, they wanted more. And that's the moral of the story, I think. The dangers of never being satisfied or uh, leaving well enough alone. They were making good money in the weed business, but soon learned that the real golden ticket in America was cocaine. And so they set their sights on turning their weed empire into a coke empire. You know, that's just the natural next step. Remember how Bradley made a lot of his connections to the wealthy and the elite through his brother-in-law? Well, pretty soon, those connections led him to two brothers in Las Vegas that had the potential and ability to give Bradley his dream of running a coke empire. They were Jimmy and Lee Chagra. Lee and Jimmy were two of the most notorious and successful drug smugglers in the entire country and had connections to many prominent drug lords in South America. Lee was a defense attorney who began who became well known for his successful case wins representing drug dealers, and Jimmy was a notorious high stakes poker gambler in the Vegas casinos, which with which the brothers were able to launder millions of dollars of drug money through. The brothers were known to the FBI due to their connections to cocaine and marijuana suppliers in Colombia, heroin suppliers in Lebanese, and even mid- and even Middle Eastern terrorist organizations. <laughs> which they supplied guns to. So Bradley eventually got his brother-in-law to introduce the two groups of drug smugglers, and it's then that Bradley proposed a business opportunity. Together, the group reached a deal. The Chagras would supply the drugs, and the company would supply the transportation and the distribution. Their first test run happened not long after, towards the end of 1978, in which the company flew a lot of marijuana into the U.S. from Colombia, and I just want you to take a guess at how much, just anything. Don't let your imagination hold you back. A hundred million pounds. They flew in 10 tons of marijuana, and it went off without a hitch. So we're just going to do a test run here. Let's go over. It's just a couple tons of pounds. Just a couple tons. So by this point, Jimmy and Lee were already very much under investigation by the FBI. And they could feel the noose tightening tighter and tighter with each passing drug run. So it was becoming apparent to everyone involved that the clock had already begun to tick down for the Chagras. And they knew it would not be long before they were arrested. And so Jimmy began to introduce Bradley to his suppliers in the U.S. and Colombia. And it seemed pretty clear to everyone that Jimmy was actually building Bradley up to be the heir apparent to the drug empire. Which is kind of sweet in a way. You know, he's like, I don't want all my work to go away, so... I'm passing it to you, kid. So it's a very heartwarming story. It's like Game of Thrones meets Breaking Bad. Now, Drew, during all of this, kind of took a back seat since he was very much opposed to going into business with the Chagras as he felt both men had a big mouth and were very egotistical, which, pot calling the kettle black. But he reluctantly went along with it because it's what Bradley wanted to do. So with the help of the Chagras, the company grew to unbelievable size. Drew and Bradley employed smugglers, pilots, ground crew to unload the supply, attorneys, engineers, mechanics, and even polygraph examiners in case they were caught. In just two years, the company had expanded into a global multi-billion dollar business with no signs of slowing down. But then, tragedy struck. On December 3rd, 1978, 
Lee Chagra's wife called him to say that she got them tickets to a local football match. He said he was excited before telling her he had to stop by his law office for a few hours and then hung up. Just two hours later, Lee Chagra would be found dead in his office. Lee had been shot through the window of his office by a 22 caliber bullet, which ripped right through both of his lungs. The coroner would later say he writhed in a pool of his own blood for almost an hour before finally bleeding to death. Now, Lee's killer would later be found to be a man named Louis Fred Esper, who was the uncle of another lawyer that had ties to the Chagra drug empire. Now, before the medical examiner even arrived at the crime scene, the local police and DEA officers had tapped had taped it off and began to ransack Lee's office for clues and evidence of his drug dealings. And with that evidence, they were able to quickly arrest and charge Jimmy Chagra with drug smuggling from Colombia. So it fell down really quickly. So Jimmy was arrested and his bond was set to a million dollars, which his lawyers argued was excessive. But it didn't seem excessive to the judge presiding over the case, which was U.S. District Attorney Judge John Wood, a judge who was infamous for his very strict and unmerciful sentencing of drug dealers. The bond was eventually lowered to 400000 and Jimmy got out. But the judge swore to him that he would do everything in his power to put him away for life. With the trial date set for May of 1979, Jimmy began complaining how there was no hope of him getting a fair trial. So, on May 29, 1979, the morning that Jimmy's trial was set to begin, Judge John Wood walked out of his house and towards his car when he was shot through the back by a 243 caliber bullet, which, is that right? That's what it said. I don't know bullets, so I was like, that seemed big. <laughs> which, <laughs> which hit him in the spine and lodged itself in his chest cavity. The judge was quickly rushed to the hospital, but it was too late to save him. Now, of course, police immediately suspected Jimmy, but he had an airtight alibi. So it was impossible for him to have carried out the murder himself, which meant someone else had to do it for him. When Bradley told Drew about the judge's assassination, Drew immediately suspected that Bradley had a hand in it since right before he went to jail, Jimmy actually called Bradley to ask for his help and assistance. But Bradley assured Drew that it didn't matter because they, were only, they would only suspect Jimmy, and that meant with Jimmy and Lee both out of the way, the company meant to inherit the entire Chagra drug empire. So at this point, Drew felt that Bradley was taking things too far and the company was getting out of hand and growing faster than they could handle. And so he walked out following an argument, but soon came back as he just couldn't stay away from that thrill. Now, the sniper was eventually caught along with Jimmy Chagra, who was charged and prosecuted for murder and drug smuggling. Now, even though the FBI already had suspicions that the company was involved with the Chagras, there was no physical proof to back it up, and so they attempted to keep a close distance and monitor their comings and goings. Now, with both Chogger brothers out of the way and the FBI unable to find proof to prosecute him, Bradley was fully free to ascend the throne of the drug empire, except he had a bit of an issue. Whereas before, the Choggers would be the ones to buy and secure the drugs, now it was solely on Bradley to come up with the money to pay the drug lords, and that was something he, had, uh, he was having trouble with. But he did not let that stop him at all in getting what he wanted. Because during one major drug run following the Chagra's elimination from the business, Bradley was short on his payment of drugs to a crime lord in Columbia. And so he chose to leave one of his underlings behind named Dan Leach as collateral. And the crime lord agreed. 
but assured Bradley that if he did not pay within a month, he would not hesitate to murder Don. And with that, Bradley secured a shipment of marijuana and coke to the U.S. all on his own. And now, so that just got me thinking, like, could you imagine not only getting left behind in a foreign country, in the home of a crime lord, like one that's terrifying, but two that's extremely awkward, because by all accounts, they treated him well, and they gave him whatever he wanted. But that entire time, in the back of your head, you're like, we're not saying it, but they will shoot me if he doesn't come through with this. And so the level of anxiety you have to have. And it's also kind of like the plot to that movie, Go. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. It's from the 90s. But uh, Katie, Holm, Katie Holmes gets left at the home of a drug dealer as collateral. And it's like all the wards from Game of Thrones, the poor families Theon. that gets like sent to people like Theon Greyjoy just to be like a hostage in the household, mm -hmm. basically. Like we're not saying it because that would be rude, but we all know what this is. Yeah, you will be murdered at any point when anybody does anything we don't like. Steps out of line. So by this point, things are starting to unravel. Bradley is completely blinded by greed and power and is starting to engage in high-risk behavior such as ripping off a bunch of Colombian drug lords. Even Drew at this point is over Bradley's ambition and is quietly attempting to cut ties with him and the company. So, you know, when this dude, the one that actually came to him with the idea, is kind of like, maybe we need to chill. The FBI were already balls deep in an investigation into Bradley and his dealings with the Colombians and slowly building a case against him, but Bradley seemed blinded and to think he was untouchable. Multiple other members of the company were starting to get sick of Bradley's shit, as most of them were not being paid for their part in getting the drugs to the U.S. So that's uh, one major thing. Yeah, you can rip people off, but don't, do not pay, hold out on your workers. And it's not like, you know, he's holding out on like 50 to 100 grand a person. I'd be pretty pissed too. So Bradley pretty soon realized he was going to be able to sell all... He wasn't going to be able to sell all the drugs in enough time to ensure Don Leach's freedom. And so he came up with another plan that involved his cousin, Larry Bryant, a former Air Force officer. La Larry had access to a naval base located in China Lake, California. And so Bradley had Larry go in with a truck and steal some old equipment, such as 10 pairs of uh, starlight night vision goggles and devices to attach to small planes to help them avoid detection. Bradley was hoping this would be enough to trade with the Colombians for Don, and they thought this plan would work as the equipment itself was old and in storage, and the naval base only checks you when you're going in, not leaving. So Larry got Bradley the military equipment, and some of it was loaded up on a plane to be shipped off to Colombia, but Bradley also had another motive. So to retrieve Don Leach, Bradley sent two men named Johnny Trussell and Jan Fisher to fly down and make the trade-off. Once in the air over the sea, Johnny admitted to Jan that Bradley had actually instructed him to get rid of Jan by pushing him out of the plane and into the ocean because he felt like he talked too much. But Johnny said he refused to do it and instead had his own plan before strapping on his seatbelt and forcing the plane into a nosedive right into the ocean crashing it right before it reached the shore. And there's a very good reason for that. Because there are actually certain rules that exist within the drug world and certain things that can free you from financial liability. One of those rules is if a smuggler, a, a smuggler escapes financial responsibility for any ill-fated trip 
in which he is busted, his plane crashes, or he is forced to abandon his aircraft. So the plan worked. The Colombians accepted the equipment as payment. Don was freed. Jan was alive. And the three men were granted safe passage back to the U.S. and promptly went into hiding and cut ties with Bradley Bryant. So Johnny Trussell is a real one because, like, you know, he was tasked with doing this run because Bradley wanted him to get rid of Jan. But not only did he was like, no, I'm going to save you. But he also he's like, I got a plan to save this other guy, too. And then he helped all of them escape. So, like, wherever you are, Johnny, I hope you're doing well. You're one of the good drug smugglers. You're one of the, the real ones. So after hearing of the fiasco in Colombia, Drew had finally had enough of Bradley's shit and got into a huge fight with him, ending with both men cutting ties and breaking off into their own separate businesses. So now the company has splintered with those loyal to Drew following him and those loyal to Bradley following him. And so that's never good. Uh, so you can see this is kind of Game of Thrones. They're all breaking off. The War of the Five Cokeheads. Now, history was starting to repeat itself at this point, as now Bradley was the one FBI agents were closing in on, just like Lee and Jimmy before him. And Bradley was getting desperate to protect his secret, which included a number of murders, including an eyewitness being found with his throat slashed, and even a couple who, were, who became drug informants against the company. Both were found dead in the bathtub of their apartment with multiple stab wounds straight through their hearts. So things were kind of coming to a head. The company had split into different factions. Bradley and Drew were no longer speaking. And the investigators were closing in. But in the end, the person who would single-handedly start the takedown of this international multi-billion dollar drug empire was a motel maid. In January of 1981, Bradley along with his cousin Larry and a bodyguard were staying at a motel in Philadelphia for a week. As they went to the airport to depart, all three were quickly seized by police and taken into custody on suspicion of drug charges. Because earlier that week, a maid at the motel had grown suspicious after smelling marijuana smoke coming from the trio's room and notified authorities. And it was not until all three were brought in for questioning that police realized they had just busted two of the most prominent members of the largest drug smuggling ring in the United States. After searching the room and recovering hundreds of thousands of dollars in weapons and $25,000 in cash, they found a receipt that led them to a storage unit, and in that unit they found the rest of the missing military equipment stolen by Larry. Both Bradley and Larry were jailed on weapons charges. Now, something to remember is, up to this point, Bradley had no sort of criminal record. At all. So the news of his arrest came as a, a bit of a shock to the community. Now, both would eventually be found not guilty, but this marked the beginning of the end for the company. Bradley kept a notebook with several known associates of his listed inside, including Drew Thornton. When police attempted to bring Drew in for questioning, however, he fled the state and went to Florida and was now on the run as a wanted fugitive. Now, the FBI was more determined than ever now to take down the company, and pretty soon they started to target anyone believed to be associated with the group. One such person was a man named Mike Kelly. Now, Mike was a well-known arms and drug dealer down in Florida that had frequent contact with Drew and Bradley and supplied them with most of their weapons. Now, Mike would eventually be caught in a sting operation and arrested on drug charges. The prosecutor at the time was a man named Gene Barry, who, like 
Judge John Wood before him, was notorious for his ruthlessness towards drug dealers, and he made sure Mike was hit with a hefty sentence. But now, this worried the company, because they feared that now that Mike was arrested, he may attempt to make a deal with Gene and would begin going down the line of Mike's known associates, and so they decided Gene had to go. And they already had a volunteer as who would carry out the hit. On January 16, 1982, a blonde woman approached the home of Jean Barry at around 6.30 at night. After knocking on the door, Jean answered the door with a smile and the woman asked him his name. When he responded, she simply said, Remember me? before pulling out a gun and firing it straight through his chest three times before running off. The woman was actually Bonnie Kelly, Mike's wife who wanted revenge for her husband's sentence. After she killed Jean, she called Drew and several others at a nearby hotel to let them know the hit was done. Now, police quickly zeroed in on Mike's known pals, Drew and Bradley, and began to find ways to try to find ways to get at them. And they found that in the form of Bonnie's little sister, who just so happened to be at the hotel the night with Drew the night of Jean's murder. Now, unlike everyone else, in this case, she was pretty much just an innocent bystander, and the thought of going to jail was enough to make her sing like a canary with everything she knew about the company's involvement and knowledge of Gene's murder. So it's one thing to murder drug informants, it's another thing to be murdering high-profile prosecutors, judges, attorneys, and stuff like that. That might um, not be swept under the rug. Now, pretty soon Bonnie herself was brought in, and she did not have a criminal record prior to prior to her murder of Jean, and had no trouble with the law. But after realizing she had been caught, she made sure that she would not go down alone and began to tell the police everything they needed to know. Now, not long after this, the FBI finally felt confident enough to take on the company, and in late January 1982, arrest warrants were issued for Bradley, Drew, and 25 other company members on drug smuggling charges. Now, Bradley was actually taken into custody without incident, uh, but Drew was a different story. Upon learning of his imminent arrest, he attempted to flee the country in a plane, only to find police waiting for him when he landed. He was quickly arrested, but unlike Bradley, whom police already had a shit ton of evidence on for everything they found in his hotel room, Drew was clean, and they had no real proof to his involvement with anything, and so he was free to go. So now, Bradley's still in jail, and that meant that left Drew unchallenged for dominance of the company empire or what's left of it because like i said at this point it's uh already falling apart so not long after he was arrested or he was released after he was arrested drew decided he was ready for another drug run eventually he managed to get in contact with an ex-pilot who was willing to help him acquire a plane for a trip to columbia for cocaine but unknown to drew the pilot was in fact a drug informant working with the fbi and this informant willingly worked with Drew to get the plane and make the drug run because they wanted to catch him with the drugs. But unknown to the FBI at the time, Drew actually had a police scanner in his car and actively listened in on their conversations as they would trail his car and follow him daily. And so by September 9th, 1985, he had disappeared and they had lost him. And remember that date because it's only two days before uh, he's dead. Now, even though they had no clue where he went, he was, they knew he was trying to get to Columbia. All they had to do was wait for their informant to alert them whenever Drew decided to make his drug run. 
Except that informant never did. Because the informant revealed that, yes, Drew came to him and took off with the plane. But he didn't realize he had to be the one to tell police that. And so, uh, now they've really lost Drew. He is gone. Now, of course, the next time anyone would see Drew Thornton around this time, he, he was found dead in a driveway in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, police soon got into contact with Drew's girlfriend, who did reveal that she was actually waiting in a nearby hotel communicating with Drew up in the air. Her job was to wait for him and his co-pilot and be their getaway driver. She would reveal that Drew radioed her and told her about their emergency jump from the plane and to wait for them to come to her. Drew's co-pilot showed up, but that Drew himself never did, and it wasn't until later she learned of his death. Now, his girlfriend to this day has refused to name Drew's co-pilot or give police any other details with what actually result, which actually resulted in her own arrest when she refused to testify before a grand jury. So to this day, 30 years later, she refuses to speak on it. And that, I think, is the true definition of a ride or die. She is a real one. She did not betray her man, even after he splatted on the ground like a bug. She was a keeper. She was. And like I said, it's like, you know, 30 years later, and spoiler alert, we still don't know who his co-pilot was to this day. It is a mystery. It could be anybody. Now, what police believe happened from the limited info they got is that Drew spotted a plane a short distance behind his own, and he became convinced that he was being followed by the feds, although that actually wasn't the case. It was just a random-ass plane. But remember, he's a paranoid dude. And so he became convinced that they were being followed, and thus he put the plane in autopilot, before chucking several large bags of the cocaine into the woods over the states of Georgia and Tennessee, and then finally jumping out himself along with his co-pilot, and of course crashing to his death due to being weighted down by all the coke strapped to his chest. It's kind of like Smeagol with the ring when he jumps into the, um, volcano. the volcano. Now, Bradley was eventually tried and convicted of drug smuggling charges, and he received 20 years in prison. However, police were never able to pin him for any involvement in any murders surrounding the company. And so after 20 years, he was let go, and his current whereabouts are unknown. Now, several other members of the company were tried and convicted of a long list, from drug possession to first-degree murder in the case of Bonnie Kelly. And with that, the company empire crumbled to the ground. And so that's the end of the company, you know? Drew's but dead. Bradley... Served his time and lost everything. All the other prominent members were arrested, served time. So uh, the empire fell in the span of about, what, 1978 to 1985? So like seven years? Less than a decade? <laughs> so I've sat through all this. We've still not got to the cocaine bear. And that's literally the next line. It says, now let's talk about cocaine bear. I know that's what you're all here for, cocaine bear. That's what I'm here for. So, on December 23rd, 1985, in the Chattahoochee National Forest, park rangers reported discovering the corpse of, and it's actually kind of sad, reported discovering the corpse of a 172-pound black bear, and then soon discovered that the bear had died of an overdose after it consumed a large amount of cocaine. How much cocaine do you think it ate? It had to be a lot to kill a 175 pound did you say 175 pound bear yeah black bear 175 pounds doesn't seem like very black bear well i mean it's not it, it's not that big of a bear 
it's not the bear that's in the movie Cocaine Bear. If you see it, it's a, I mean, it's about the size of I don't know, a big dog. I mean, I'm a bigger bear than that bear. I am too. I weigh 205 pounds. <laughs> so this just made me self-conscious. Now, they discovered the corpse of a 172-pound black bear, and it had died of an overdose after it ate 75 pounds of cocaine. A medical examiner who did an autopsy on the poor bear said that its stomach was literally packed tight with cocaine. 75 pounds of cocaine. And of course, that's the cocaine that Drew chucked out of the plane into the woods. And that's also the plot of uh, Cocaine Bear, where they all like, I think it's they're all going in search of the cocaine that's been thrown out there, and that's when the bear finds it. I hope they kind of skip the rest of that stuff and just stick with the cocaine bear. They are. They're sticking with the cocaine bear. It's all about cocaine bear. It's nothing about the drug empire, which I think was interesting and I think should be its own movie. But, you know, whatever, man. The doctor who performed the the autopsy, the autopsy didn't want the bear to just go to waste. And so he had it stuffed. It was assumed lost for years before finally turning up at a pawn shop and it was placed on display in the this is a weird name. Kentucky for Kentucky Fun Mall in Lexington, Kentucky, where it is still to this day for anyone to go and visit. So if you're near Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, stop by and see Cocaine Bear. I'm sure he'd love to see you. And so now, with that, that is the end of Cocaine Bear and the Bluegrass Conspiracy. And hopefully that got you guys ready and excited to go see Cocaine Bear this weekend. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, it's a long way to go for Cocaine Bear, but it was an interesting story. Yeah, it's a, it's a different story. You know, there's every now and then you got to take a break from the constant murder, 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 murder. And so just uh, talk about Coke a little. And so with that, if you guys liked us, please be sure to give us a five-star rating on Spotify or iTunes. Please leave us a review. It helps us out a lot. We'd love to hear from you guys. And if you want to see photos from the case or you want to hear, or if you're a visual learner instead of an auditory learner, you can follow us on social media at Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod. That's P-O-D, pod. Or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. And until next week, stay dangerous out there, my friends. See you soon. Bye.